Thank you so much, Graciana. Will you uh, take your Bibles? I hope you're there. We're going to look at several passages this morning uh, about leadership. And as we continue to look at the design of the church, we come to a subject today that I want to talk about uh, that, uh, that asks the question, why do we do the things that we do as a church when it comes to church leadership? Why do we have pastors? Why do we have deacons? What are their qualifications? And why do we think what we do is right? Because if you know anything about churches and you know anything about different denominations in the history of Christianity, you know there are various governing structures. There are presbyteries and we have, we have uh, a pope in one area of Christianity and we have bishops and cardinals and all these kind of things. Well, why would we uh, stand in a particular type of governance structure? And you'd say, I wanted to come hear something more interesting this morning. Well, I'm telling you, this is of great interest and it is of great importance. And uh, let me just kind of mention a couple of things because we're going to be delving into these subjects and have been talking about church membership, been talking about baptism, the Lord's Supper. A lot of these subjects are really huge and really could deserve three or four messages per, uh, per subject, in particular this one and, and what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, that we're going to have a couple of Q&A sessions. And so this afternoon at 4 o'clock, uh, uh, Jordan Massey, who pastors our Southwest campus, he and I are going to be in the fellowship hall. If you have a question about any of these messages or any of these topics, we're just going to feel those questions, talk about them, and have discussions about them. So uh, if, you, if uh, today's message raises a bunch of questions for you, you can certainly reach out to me. Uh, but hopefully it will confirm some of what maybe you thought or maybe you've grown up in a Baptist church your entire Christian life and, and you have no idea why we do what we do. And so hopefully this will put it into context and you can see what we do right in the scriptures. And so we're going to talk about that uh, today. Why do we have pastors? Now you might, you might think this is kind of a a weird thing for the pastor to be preaching a sermon on pastors. And I'm telling you, it is a weird thing. It feels weird. And so as I talk about this, if you're thinking, man, that must feel really strange for him, it does. And it's, a, it's uncomfortable. And then we're going to be talking about a subject that came up at our convention and it sort of hit national news. And it is a subject that wades into some very controversial type waters. And, and that was the, the, uh, the subject of uh, how can women minister in churches? Are there women pastors? Is that something the Bible allows? Why don't we see that across Baptist churches? We see it maybe in some other denominations. And so the headlines will come out and say, Baptists don't let ladies do anything in their churches. And of course, that could be, couldn't be any further from the truth. And I wanna help give you some biblical understanding of why we, don't, we, we are a complementarian church and not an egalitarian church. So we'll talk about that a little bit today, and those are two big words, but hopefully you'll understand a little bit more about those uh, after today, and, and this is a subject. So we're wading into some, some waters that are a little bit weird, and, and it's a little bit weird for me to talk about 
pastors and elders and overseers and, and how we respond to them and, and what their level of authority is in the church. For, for me to preach that is kind of strange too, uh, but hopefully we'll make it through that. But if you noticed in Titus chapter 1, the reason I picked this because there's several good, good passages talking about the qualifications of a pastor or an elder overseer. Uh, I picked Titus because it's got this great word in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says in verse 5, this is why I, and who's the I? This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, I left you, and who's he talking to? He's talking to Titus. This is one of his uh, kind of apostolic agents. It's a great word for a Titus. He's not really an apostle, but he's been vested temporarily with some apostolic authority to set in order what remains of Paul's ministry on this island near Greece, this island called Crete. So Paul had done this missionary work there, and he had started all these various churches, but he had to leave. And so these churches started, and of course they were all new, and they had new leadership and new people, and, and they were filled with the Spirit, and there were all these spiritual gifts and things happening in these churches. But of course, he had heard they'd gotten out of order. And he even talks about this. I don't get into how these, these Cretans, these, uh, uh, the, the folks of Crete were known for being a little bit crazy in their behavior, a little bit unruly. And, and so there was a lot of talk about that. Uh, he says, but I want to send you, Titus, this is a tough job. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put in order what I left behind. It needs order. And the way that you're going to do that is you're going to appoint some elders, and notice he says, appoint elders, plural, in how many towns? Every town, as I, the apostle, directed you. So I've already told you this, dude. I want to make sure you're going to do this. You need to go into these various churches that I've planted in all these various towns, and you need to set up some church leadership. And he calls them elders. Now, why would we need church leadership? And what is, what is going on here? Well, let me remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, now there are in the church, even in this church, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone to each one of you, to every single born again person, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, a gift or gifts of the Spirit for the common good. And so you have a place in the body of Christ. Everyone has a function, a role to play. And this is by, this is not that I gave you a spiritual gift test and I, uh, test and I assigned you a particular job. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit called you out of darkness into life and has equipped you and designed you to function in a congregation, function in the body of Christ in a very specific way. And it is our job as, as Christians to kind of discover that, and we discover that by getting involved and, and doing things, and people begin to notice, hey, you know, you got some speaking gifts, or you got some real service or administrative gifts, and you ought to, you ought to apply yourself to that in that area. And that's kind of how I ended up right here on a, on a platform in front of you, uh, all these many years later is it's just the work of the spirit and the work of people encouraging and and all of those kind of things and, and that's why you're doing what you're doing but all of this can be totally out of order it can get totally crazy and we saw that in our study of first corinthians and and so he came to the corinth and he said you got to set these things in order 
And the way that he does that is he says, we need some, some leadership. We need a framework to plug all of these varieties of gifts that are all equally important. Remember in 1 Corinthians where he says, how can the hand tell the foot? He doesn't need a foot. How can an eye tell a nose that you don't need a nose? No, you can't. Everybody's gift and function and role is of equal value in the eyes of God, but they're different roles. And so leadership helps arrange it. But understand, it is the Holy Spirit. Look what verse 18 says. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And I love this word that uh, I love this word that he used. Set in order. Epidia ortho. Epidia ortho. And when I looked at that word, it, it just kind of gave me my, my illustration for the day, my analogy today. This word, and I think you can see it. Epi means upon. Dia means through. And that's an intensifier. And he says, I want you to come down upon and, and come upon and work through what I left behind and bring ortho. Have you ever been to the orthopedic doctor? How many of you have ever been to a, an, a, 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 a physical therapist of some sort or a, an orthopedic type doctor? You broke an ankle or you twisted a knee or you've got something out of order. I don't know what happened to me a few years ago, but I'm needing more of this in my life. I don't know what's happening, but I've been visiting orthopedic folks and physical therapists. I got a little shoulder, but here's what, if you go to an ortho, if you go to these folks, they, they've gone to school all these many years and they're very excited, not just to say, yeah, you got a torn this or you got something like, they, if they're a really good doctor, really good physical therapist, they get excited and they always want to take their models and show you what's going on. They love to do that, and I love it when they do that. They take the skull, and they say, look, there's how it works. You know, they take an arm, and they'll bend it. And, and, and uh, so I, I threatened my, my uh, physical therapist. I was going to bring the entire skeleton and hang it here and talk to it, but I, I knew I'd start playing with the skeleton and waving his arms and stuff. So I, I just went with a picture. I just went with a picture. All right, so if you can see this picture this is what an ortho is going to do, an orthopedic doctor. Somebody's going to, they love to bring the model out because you can't see the structure. You can't see it. If, if you can see all of this stuff, you're dead. You're not in really good shape, right? So you need this under the skin, under the fat, under the hair, under the eyes, all this kind of stuff. But underneath, we know there is a design. We know there is a structure that holds everything together. I'm sorry you folks can't see this very well. Uh, but this, this body right here is is uh, composed of bones, is composed of muscles. And, and I love when the physical therapist was saying, here's why yours hurts. And he would show that and he'd kind of move it and say, it's supposed to do this and it's not doing that. And when I looked at this body and I look at the church and I look at the fact that when Paul was deciding to describe what is a local congregation, what's a good analogy, he used the body. Now he talks about it as a temple. He talks about it as a as a structure, Peter, Peter talk, talks it like a, we're all living stones, but I, I love this, this idea of it being a body. It kind of helps me I understand that there are various members of the body, various parts, and they all need to function well. And there needs some, there has to be structure in a church. And um, what we have to ask is what an 
what a doctor has to ask about this. If your arm's not working, your foot's not working, if there's some sort of ache or pain, he has to go to the design, that what DNA does. And basically, a human, all human beings have, if your DNA comes out right, if, you're, if it's working right, all human beings are gonna have this basic functional design. You're gonna have a skeletal structure, you're gonna have these muscle structures, and they're all supposed to operate the same. Now, we all look different on the outside, but on the inside, there's a structure that should work together. And he comes to Titus, he says, Titus, I want you to go and I want you to put a structure into these churches. And when I as a pastor look at, look at a church and I look at my role and I look at, at your role, um, and I, I think we need to function well to accomplish the mission of making disciples of all nations. How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna make disciples out of our kids? How are we gonna work together and grow in Christ? How are we gonna do this? I need to go to some picture. I need to find some picture where God says this is how it works. And where do we find our diagram, our blueprint for how a church works? The Bible. So an orthopedic's gonna pull this out for you. But I, when we're gonna talk about structure and design, I pull what out for you? The Bible. Because I believe the Bible is designed and is the authoritative word of God. In fact, the Bible says it very clearly. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, there I am, getting my arms straight, getting your knees straight. It's good for correction, it's good for training and righteousness that the man of God may be what? Complete, equipped for every good work. What I find that a lot of the arguments against various things that come up in what we do as a church or as Christians or what we believe about marriage or sexuality and gender and some of these other things that are hot topics, what we find is, is it's really, for me, for me it's not an argument. It's not an argument about those particular topics. It's an argument about the authority of the design. The authority and reality of the design. What you need to know about me as a pastor and Westside as a church, and I believe the majority of us, and I know historically and, and the teachers and all, I believe that we believe, how many of you think this is the structure of a human body? I mean, if you're doubting that, we need to talk. It's pretty simple, we know. It's in us, we've seen us, seen this. I'm as sure about the Bible being God's design and blueprint for life and faith, as I am. I'm just as sure of that as I am that this is the structure of a human body. And so it's really not a, a battle for me when we get into these hot topics. It's not so much a battle over the particular topics, it's a battle over scripture. Is it our authority or is it not? Now there are things in scripture that are very clear and they're easy for us all to kind of look at. And then there are other things that are not as clear 
and you have to work through systematic theology. And what that is, is you're taking Scripture and you're building a case from the, from the fullness of Scripture, from the fullness of the whole skeletal structure of the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament, you are building, just like a doctor would, a case for why the nose should go here instead of here. How many of you believe the nose should go on the front of your face? I mean, it'd be kind of funny if your nose was on the back of your head. I mean, you'd smell going what you've, you know, left. You wouldn't know what's going. I mean, just imagine if your eyes. I don't know what I just said, but ignore that. (laughs) That wasn't designed for the sermon. But anyway, the, the eyes, the ears, God put these into place that he needed them. And so, you know, we don't argue about where the arms should go or where the legs should go. And because we believe this is God's design, he created human beings to be like this, right? Now we know that things can get out of place and people are born without arms and we don't throw people away if they're born without an arm. And we don't get rid of every church that's not doing everything right and we know that we're not doing everything right. So we don't just chuck the whole thing because we're not doing it perfectly by design and we know we can make mistakes, right? So we're careful and we're loving in that way, but that doesn't keep us from being like a good physical therapist or a good orthopedic doctor of continually coming back to the map of life and practice, which is God's word to say, how do we do church? How do we do marriage? How do we do this life? I don't know where else to look other than God's word because I know it's breathed of him. So that's a big part of everything. So I hope what, what, when we walk through challenging things and you've been with me almost nine years, as some of you have been here, and some of y'all are brand new, is that I hope you will see in, in what I try to do and what hopefully your life group leaders are trying to do and those that teach the Bible here is just continue to bring you back to the blueprint, blueprint and say, just make sure your arm's right there. Just make sure if that muscle gets out of place, you, you, you rehab that muscle so that it gets stronger. We just do that through Scripture. All right, say amen if you follow me so far. All right, so, so he sends Titus and he says, put things in order. Now, what does he do? Well, he begins by uh, putting elders in leadership. Elders. Well, what are, what are elders? Let's talk about these just for a minute. If you look at that verse... Um, we don't really call people elders necessarily here at Westside Baptist Church. We, we call our elders pastors, or really the senior pastor in particular. And I know why they got rid of the term elder, because no one likes being called old. <laughs> I don't know if that's why. And it's hard to look at a 35-year-old pastor and go, Elder John, you know? I'm not sure if that's why, but there's, there's, a, there's, ter- there's three terms that are basically interchangeable for the same office. And what we, what we see when we look at the, the framework of the New Testament are three particular offices. The first one is apostle. 
The second is the elder pastor overseer. And the third is deacon. We'll talk about deacon next week. The apostle, I truly believe the evidence of scripture indicates that there are no more apostles because the apostles were those who visually saw the resurrected Christ and were personally called into ministry by the resurrected Christ. And so there are different denominations and others that would say I've got the gift of apostleship and I'm not sure what they're referring to all the time in that, but there are no more apostles, there are no more Pauls and Peters and Johns because there are no more people that saw the resurrected Christ and been personally called to be. And the apostles were the ones who could write scripture. And we don't want anybody saying I'm writing some new scripture. They could write scripture that was God-breathed, not all that they wrote was God-breathed, but God used the apostles to lay the foundation. And Paul was very jealous of that, and so that's a whole sermon that I could talk about why there aren't any more apostles, but that office died out with the very last apostle. So we're left with two official offices. Now we have unofficial offices, we have a treasurer. We have all sorts of little offices that are parts of our church that are absolutely critical. But the two that we find in Scripture are, is this office of spiritual leader, uh, elder, overseer, pastor, and then deacon. And here's the difference between the two, is that the elder, overseer, and pastor governed and taught, and the deacons served and administrated needs. But the elder, overseer, pastors were assigned with the task of governing and teaching. And so he says, Titus, go in here. We need some folks to bring some governing to the, bring some order and structure to what we have left behind. Let me show you Acts 14. So in the book of Acts, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So the apostles had just planted some churches And they returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, and notice there's a plurality of elders, and I'm going to talk about that either this Sunday or the next time that we talk about this, this plurality of elders. It seems like in these early churches there were more than one elder. There was more than one pastor that sort of had this governing teaching uh, um, authority. So we see it in plural a lot. But I would say that in 98, 99% of our Baptist churches, there's one elder, one pastor. And then you have many deacons. And so that's one way that can work, but we'll talk about whether that's really the best way. We just have to look at the design. We just have to look at the design of the Bible and think through this together as a church. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then if you turn back to Titus chapter one, so it was the, it was the uh, principle and practice of the apostles when they planted a church to look within that church have that congregation, and there was always congregational involvement in this, the congregation would look at the qualifications that the apostles laid before them and said, do you have some folks in your, this body of believers who meet this quali- these qualifications? And if they do, would you as a congregationally, c- congregation willingly appoint them, we might call it elect, appoint them or elect them 
to a leadership governing teaching position and then as a congregation turn around and say to that person that you believe God called and God equipped and that you've agreed with that you set that person into that role of spiritual leadership and then you turn around and what you're supposed to do with a with a leader follow so you turn around and you submit and follow to the leader that you believe God has called to be that part of that church that part of the congregation and so that, that's what we see happening in the New Testament over and over again. But I want to show you that, that in verse 7, he's referred to as something different. He's talking about the same person, the elder, and he says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He's still giving qualifications here, but he uses another term. Now, overseer is episkopos in the Greek, and that's where we get this Latinized word, bishop. You've heard the word bishop? It's just a Latinized form of this word episkopos. It means to view over. And so an overseer is the same office as an elder. And so we work through that. And he even uses another term, but this is not one of the three. But he says an overseer as God's what? Steward. God's steward. Now, in the Greek, that's oikonomos, and this, this is an administrator, a person who manages the domestic affairs of a family business, a treasurer, a chamberlain of a city, a house manager. It's somebody who is given by the owner stewardship of the house. And so that's another way of thinking of a, an elder or an overseer is it's God's steward of God's house. And then there's a third, third one. In Ephesians 4, we see... The one and only time this is used as a noun. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what is this shepherd teacher? Well, the word shepherd is poimen, where we get the word what? Pastor. Pastor. Pastor is just another word for a shepherd. Now, we use that terminology, and I don't know when and how that adopted, but that's the primary terminology we use for a person like me, that you feel has been called and you've uh, affirmed that call to be a shepherd over the flock of God here at Westside. And so you call me pastor, and I love that, but pastoring is more of what I do and less of kind of that uh, role the role better is the overseer uh, but the what I do is a shepherd and so those are interchangeable words but only one office one office so all that to set up a few points so let's look at what he says he says all right I want you to go Titus and I want you to go to these towns where they have these burgeoning churches, and I want you to make sure they have some spiritual leadership. And he called them elders, overseers, shepherds, and these churches need that. And then he gives a list of uh, qualifications. But I want to begin by thinking about what are the responsibilities of an elder, pastor, overseer? What is their responsibility? according to scripture. Well, 1 Peter 5 says, this is Peter, the apostle, and he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as the partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, shepherding, you know what kind of those duties are. I think Peter's absolutely thinking about guiding and feeding and protecting because that's what shepherds did. And then he kind of, he adds to it, he says, exercising bishopry, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly. And by the way, all of you are willingly uh, a part of this church. You are voluntarily, willingly, no one has made you or is subjecting you to me <laughs> as your leader, right? You, are not, you have not been made to do that. We all willingly do this. And, and so our elders and pastors and leaders, not under compulsion, but willingly, this is us coming in service to God as God would have us, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So you see the role of oversight and shepherding there. In Acts chapter 20, he, uh, we just read this. It says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, verse 28, to care for the church of God. Whose church is it? It's God's. Why? Because he obtained this church and bought us with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men. You're speaking twisted things. So he says, even among you elder pastor overseers, you know this. You're going to have to keep your eye on those people. Because even among them, there are going to rise up people who twist things and speak false things. And so the elders and pastors and overseers, this group needs accountability. Who are they accountable to? I see this in scripture that they are accountable to these congregations and to fellow elders. And so it's not like we turn around and we say, all right, you're our leader, do whatever and say whatever you want. It's not a cult, it's God's church, right? But what is this pastor elder overseer going to be speaking from when he is teaching and exercising leadership? He's going to be teaching from the design, God's word, from the map, from the map. And so that's what you are to look for and listen to. So if I were to boil it down, I think 1 Timothy 5.17 boils it down well. What does a pastor, elder, overseer do? What should you expect from a pastor, elder, overseer? Here's what you should expect. Let the elders who rule or govern well be considered worthy of double honor. So you should expect those who are your pastors to rule well, to govern well, especially those. So there are some who aren't doing this, but especially those who have the giftings or who have, you have uh, put in the place of teaching and preaching. Those two things, I really believe, are the key responsibilities that I have, is oversight of the church, oversight of the flock of God, oversight of our souls together. And remember, I'm a member of it. <laughs> We're all part of the same body. But part of my role is oversight, and our role as pastors and elders is oversight. And the way that we lead primarily is through preaching and teaching 
the Word of God. And y'all understand why I'm pointing to this body when I say Word of God. The Scripture is our map. It's our DNA. It is our blueprint. So, why would, let me, let me think about, we have uh, this, why this can sometimes get confused, confusing, and has gotten confused in our denomination in some ways, is because not everyone that is in our church who is absolutely qualified to be an elder is an elder. You are not an elder or a pastor by virtue of being qualified. You are that by being qualified and being appointed or elected and put into that position by the church. So there are plenty of people who are just as qualified and capable of leading and governing and teaching uh, on our staff and not on our staff. You are qualified, but you have not been placed in that role at this point. Sometimes we will use the term pastor and we will apply that to people on our staff or we'll apply that to people in life because that's what they do for us. They shepherd us in way, and they care for us, but they're not in the elder overseer office. And so sometimes we'll get, and, and this, is, this is what's impacting our denomination, is sometimes the term pastor has been used with, with folks that aren't in the elder overseer role, but they're somewhere overseeing or ministering to a smaller group or segment of our church body. But in reality, I think that the elder role overseer is, is, is this by, by two qualification, two responsibilities in, in particular. First is the extent of their governance, their governance. The extent of my governance is I have been assigned the whole church. I, have, I am being held responsible by you for you. But worse than that, <laughs> I'm being held responsible by who? God. Not for a segment, not for a particular age group, not for this. I am being held responsible for the whole thing. And when you have an elder or a group of elder pastors that are responsible for the whole thing, I think that's who we're talking about, elder pastor, overseer. A second thing is I believe that it is the platform that you give the elder pastor overseer to teach from that distinguishes them. The platform that I have is not a life group. That's why I don't think that you have to be an elder pastor overseer to teach a life group. That is in the structure of our teaching ministry. But the platform that you give me and that God has called me to is a platform of teaching the whole church. And when you have someone and you give someone that level of oversight and governance and speaking authority to actually teach the whole church, then this particular place of preaching, this particular place of teaching, I feel great weight and responsibility and so when you select someone to stand Sunday after Sunday in a place like this and speak to you God's word and you charge them with oversight for the whole thing, that's an elder, pastor, overseer. Are you following me? And if you choose someone to do that, 
choose wisely. Choose carefully, or you may end up with somebody like me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what are the qualifications for someone like that? You say, well, nobody should feel. I just wanted to, you to feel the weight just for a little bit. But there are lots of people qualified to do this. Let's look at the qualifications. But not everybody's called to do it. Not everybody's called to do it. Titus 1, here, here goes. He, let's, we're going to read through these, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each. It says, if anyone is above reproach, that's in his personal life, his professional life. If he's the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. There's the teaching part. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those. There's the protected part. Rebuke those who contradict it. So there's a protection. There's a feeding job. There's an oversight job. And there's qualifications. And, and let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is an, a similar list. And the reason I pull this out is it's the same in Ephesus as it is in Crete. All of these churches have sort of the same blueprint for their leadership. So as we select pastors and elders, let's remember. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to what? Teach. And that's the distinguishing feature because we're going to see with deacons it's a similar list, but it doesn't have that qualification in it. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now let me just stop here for a second and talk about the husband of one wife part. That, that part has been, is debated. What does that mean? Does that mean they have never been divorced, have only been married once? Or does it mean they shouldn't have more than one wife at a time, polygamy? Um, I believe that the primary focus of this is two things. The first is that it was common in that day, it was still a possibility, especially among the Jewish folks, to have more than one wife, polygamy. And I, I think he's saying we don't, polygamy is not right. The second thing is, is really when you look at the Greek, it's a one-woman man, a, a, a man who is focused and faithful to his one wife. The reason I pulled divorce out of there, divorce in my mind is not what that phrase stands about. To me, divorce, the issue with divorce is the first thing in both lists, which is what? Above reproach. So the divorce makes you just kind of question, you, and you should. And then it, there's another list down the line that says man, a good manager of his household. So you put those two things together. So the marriage matters, but I don't think it's because of the husband of one wife thing. Now, there's some others kind of debate that. But, so does divorce matter? Yes. But remember in this list 
that this list doesn't say a person, if they're gonna be an overseer, can never have been uh, unholy, could never have been undisciplined, could never have been a drunkard, could never have been quick-tempered. How many people would be qualified? Nobody. And so I think to put never been married before in there, you have to be careful to uh, treat that phrase correctly. What he's saying is he, he pulls out characteristics and he says, what you're looking for is someone who has demonstrated over a period of time heart qualities, moral qualities, ethical qualities that you want to be an example to your church with. Because your leaders that you call in should be an example in these areas and should be walking their what? Talk. And so they're going to be teaching God's word. They ought to be trying to live out that God, God's word. And so you know nobody can perfectly fit this list, but what you're looking for is a continual uh, a lifestyle and uh, of growth in these areas and someone who's demonstrated that they, they are these things over a period of time. That's why you don't want a novice. I think that is why you use the word elder, is it gives you a sense that here's a person that has some history you can look at and is observable. And so you look at each of these things, and I don't have time to break down each of them. They're pretty self-explanatory. And they're in our Constitution. This is what we look for, and we are held accountable to as pastors and as deacons. I just put it into three questions, I think. These are three questions I think are good. When we're looking at an elder, pastor, overseer, three questions. Can he lead himself well? Can he lead himself well in the areas of uh, substance? It brought up being a drunkard. Uh, in the areas of uh, his, his uh, self-control, his anger, his temperament. Is he a self-controlled person, and does he show that he can lead himself well? And is, that, that would mean he would be above reproach, I think, in the, in, the, in the public domain and with his neighbors as well. He can lead himself well. And then the second thing we see in a couple of these phrases, can he lead his home well? Can he lead, and is he leading his home well? And then finally, does he understand God's word, and is he able to? To teach it is he able to teach it so those are the qualifications that we see in Scripture now one of the qualifications as you read through these and as you look at our churches you'll notice that the pronoun that is used over and over again and it's even in the Greek that these are male pronouns and why is it that we don't see elder ets Pastorates. Why do we not see this office? There is some evidence that there were deaconesses. There's some evidence to that, and that's, that's somewhat debatable, but there's, there's good evidence for that, and that there were females who were serving as deacons and serving in that capacity, but there's no evidence that in the early church or in the Old Testament, the role of priests was reserved for men. And then in the early church, 
this particular role only. There were women who prayed. There were women who, who, uh, who spoke in the church services and prophesied. There were all these kind of activities that women were involved in. They were, they were uh, critical and still are critical to everything. Why is it that it seems like the New Testament reserves this role only, elder, pastor, overseer, for qualified men? And let me just state that again, for qualified men men why does why does the bible do this especially especially when jesus elevated and established women more than any teacher of his day i mean he just he used them to uh incredible in incredible ways but why did the 12 apostles why were they just men well you have to look back i really think to the design it is a design question let me, t- let me show you the one passage of Scripture that really gets, gets you in hot water. It's hard, and it's difficult, but it's there. And we have to ask, why is it there? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll get this started, and then I'll come back to it in two weeks. Let a woman learn quietly with submissiveness. Now, what's the context? The context is he's helping uh, Timothy and uh, lead this Ephesian church and it was getting somewhat disorderly and he is encouraging in this disorder to help the women understand that in the context and I believe the environment he's talking about is not a life group it's not a corporation it's not a business this is in the context of right now where you have the authoritative teaching and, uh, of God's word, in that time, that role was given to the elder pastor overseer. He's saying, in that role, I want the ladies to learn. By the way, before this, they didn't care if ladies ever learned. They kept them out of the learning environments. They didn't want them to learn. Jesus and the apostles changed the life. We want all the ladies learning. So there's elevation and wonderful things happening, but he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise what? Authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, that just rubs you the wrong way. Just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right because we've been indoctrinated and we're fleshly. And we need to make sure we look and ask ourselves, why is he saying this? Well, I'm glad that he ties it in right here. The reason it has nothing to do with prestige or status, has nothing to do with inferiority, has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a complementarian creation. And Paul attaches his his pronouncement here to creation, to the original design. It's not a church growth method. It's not to, to meet a cultural issue that's going on in Ephesus today. He goes way back to the beginning. He says there's something about the way God created us that calls for sacrificial Loving male leadership in a church. What could call for that? 
Well, he goes back to Adam and Eve. And he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And when we listen to that, we automatically think, he's saying women are more easily deceived and we need to make sure they just don't say anything. That is not what Paul is really saying. He is saying that there is a leadership role that was designed in creation. And Adam was given a headship and a leadership over Eve. And it wasn't because Eve was unruly or needed it. It's because he designed it that way. As I looked at this this picture, I thought of it in terms of, uh, uh, of complement. They, they were created not identical. They were created very unique, and they were created to form a union that reflected, I think, the relationship in the, of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, even in the Trinity, there is a leadership that the Father exercises and a submission that happens in this this eternal relationship in the Godhead. And when he created male and female, he created them to reflect his image, this companionship. And it would be like saying, um, I'm, I'm glad I have muscles and bones. How about you? They work well together. You take one of them out. They are designed to complement each other. Are bones and muscles the same exact thing? No, but they are designed to work together to reflect, I think, uh, the image of God. And this, this male sacrificial headship was designed into the created order, but sin turned complementarianism turned turned their complementing each other into competition with each other. Sin did that. Sin did not create these gender roles. God did. Sin doesn't make us different. God made us different. Sin makes us competitive, makes us selfish, We want to dominate. As men, we want to dominate. As women, we want to dominate. We want our way. That is what sin has done to us. Don't throw out the skeleton. Don't throw out God's design because we have problems with it, and it's not functioning. Aren't you glad that we have diseases and things like this happens to us? That Aren't you glad we have doctors and nurses and hospitals and scientists that are figuring out how to make us work? Absolutely. So we don't just say, well, nobody's working, bodies aren't working very well, let's let everybody die. No, we turn, return to the design and say, what does God say? So I just, I just hold on to this created order, and that's where Paul roots this particular rule, and he says, teach with authority. I combine those two things. They're separate functions, but they're combined right here, and in this context, what I think he's saying I want to make sure that in the churches that uh, these very capable people, men who aren't in that role and women who aren't in the role of elder pastor, do not usurp that teaching authority in the primary place of that teaching authority. I don't know if that made sense. But in the place where we come together and we say this is where the one or whoever we have appointed and delegated to them to teach with us 
what does God say from God's word over the entire church? We are going to reserve that for the qualified man or men that we put in that position to lead us spiritually. The problem we have, though, is we think of this role and we think of, uh, think of elders and pastors and overseers wrongly. We think of it in terms of status. And if you think of it as status or professional advancement, well, you're just saying a woman can't get to the highest point in the church. You're trying to keep people or unqualified men. By the way, 99.5% of the men in the church have the same role of spiritual followership or spiritual submission to the pastors that they call and put in place. Same thing. Same level of submission. And this does not say that women submit to men. It doesn't say that. It just says to the ones that you've called to be your pastors in the spiritual sense from the teaching of God's word, that's where it happens. And so we just look at it, though, as prestige or pressure. But we're looking at pastor, elder, overseer incorrectly. It's really not the highest position in the church. It's the lowest. That's why Jesus, when he came to the disciples, he washed their what? He washed their feet. And they're looking at him and said, no, you're the highest person in the room. He says, look what the highest person in the room does. Service. Faithful, male, sacrificial leadership. But we get it all turned around, and I get it turned around, and churches get all turned around, and you start abusing position and power, and you start thinking, well, you're holding me back. Man, I tell you, we struggle with God's design because of the sin in our heart. We think of it as status, and it's, it's meant to be service. We think of it in terms of professional advancement and power instead of sacrifice. I think it is better for you to think of this role or if you're called to be an elder or a pastor in this church, think of it better in terms of burden and accountability to the church, you, and to God. The burden of preaching and teaching from a place of spiritual authority is a tremendous burden in my mind. Tremendous. That I could be wrong and make you all think something wrong scares me to my knees. I wouldn't pursue that. I'd let God call you to that. The burden of church discipline, having to confront people in their sin. The burden of overseeing Volunteers, you can't tell what to do. There's no power or prestige in that. Just painful decision-making week after week after week. And then getting it wrong from time to time. Not being perfect and having to do that. So we think of it wrong. That's the qualifications. I'm going to talk more about this.
created design when we talk about gender in a couple of weeks, and I'll return back to this. But the reason we're a complementarian church when it comes to women can just do anything, but we reserve this particular role because it reflects the Trinity, it reflects the created order of Adam and Eve, it reflects the family where I still believe God says there ought to be sacrificial, male, loving headship in a home, and we, the church, are a family. And so we reflect that same image in our church governance. It's not a matter of status. It's a matter of design. And I pray that you see that. Let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want us to end by singing a song that kind of puts it back in perspective. Jesus is the center of it all. He's the center of it all. He is the head of the church. Whoever stands behind this pulpit on this podium is not the center of the church. Jesus is the center of it all. He's the head of the church. He's speaking to us through his spirit and through his word and help us all, church. We need to all come to the design and the DNA of his word and just say, God, whatever it says, help us understand it as correctly as we possibly can and help us to live it. And you pray for me as I seek to do that and I'll pray for you as we seek to do that together. God, help us. And then I would say this. This is not a central issue on whether you go to heaven or not. So if you're here today, the most important thing that God's authoritative word says to you this morning is that there is a perfect Savior who gave his life on a cross for you. He took your sin and he died for you and he resurrected and he will give you eternal life if you'll receive it this morning. So as we stand and pray in just a moment, and as we sing, if you want to trust Christ as Savior, you can do so. If you want to join our fellowship, you come down. We have prayer folks that will be here. We'll sing. We'll respond. Father, I pray that each of us have you at the center of our heart. I pray that we would just continually uh, yield to the authority of your word. And that we would have grace with one another in these areas that are sometimes hard to understand and maybe uh, aren't totally clear. God, just help us to have grace upon our fellow believers and help us pursue you with grace. And we ask this together in Jesus' name, amen.